You're listening to The Patchwork Girl and Friends. I'm Kendra, and I love having interesting conversations with my friends about art, media, life, the universe, and everything. And that is what this podcast is all about. It's going to be a lot of fun today because I have two guests. They are siblings, and they are CJ. Hello. And Andrew. Greetings. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I've been looking forward to this for a really long time, actually. (laughs) We are honored. (laughs) And today we're going to be talking about our Dungeons & Dragons game that CJ and Andrew are co-dungeon mastering. First thing is being co-DMers. I don't know the proper terminology. How does that work with you two? Do you each take a specific piece of the gameplay? How do you work with each other to do that? Well, we do have certain things that we kind of are responsible for more. So what I tend to do is a lot of the project management, a lot of the um, narrative decisions. I'm the one who kind of presents the... I guess I'm the main storyteller is essentially what I am. And then Andrew. If it involves any writing, she does it. Yeah, pretty much. And then Andrew handles all of the rules aspects, the technical mechanical aspects. He runs the combat encounters during the sessions and um, makes all the decisions about experience points and all that kind of stuff. And so, but like when it comes to the brainstorming part, we both contribute to that. Like we both bounce ideas off of each other and collaborate really closely in trying to figure out, you know, what do we throw out the players next and where do we take the story next and things like that. Also during the sessions, I think that we kind of play off each other a bit when it comes to like the improvisation of it, because I get a little lost sometimes with the improvisation. Um, that isn't really my strong suit. I'm very much a, I like knowing what to expect, but the only thing you can expect during a D&D game is the unexpected. So having Andrew, who's really good at improvisation in the session with me, who can like come up with random answers when one is needed is really helpful and really, really cool. So there are some parts that we are individually responsible for, And then there are some parts that we collaborate really closely on. How did it fall? Uh, Is that something you decided beforehand? Or is that something you just fell into while working with each other? Yeah, pretty much. um, When it was started, uh, I believe CJ came and started telling me about uh, this idea for a campaign uh, that she had. And I was like, okay, I want to be your co-DM. Because uh, I, I want in on this. Pretty much one of the first things we decided was I would handle all the, the rules and the math and the technical stuff because she didn't, she didn't really know all the rules uh, and how everything works, but I did. And immediately it was like, this is, this is first of all, it was your idea. Uh, you get to be the creative lead in a sense, but also she's just so much better at organizing and describing things. One of my failings is that when I'm running the battles and having the enemies do their thing, I know what they're doing, but my descriptions tend to be a little bit, you know, less descriptive and colorful. Even when they're fun, they're still not as beautiful and well-crafted as CJ's. So immediately from the beginning, (laughs) immediately from the beginning, we knew that what our roles were going to be just because mm-hmm. we know each other so well. Yeah, we know each other's strengths and each other's weaknesses. And so we were pretty easily just able to fall into those roles without really having explicit discussions about it. I think because I am the way I am, I was like, Andrew, we should probably have like a like a DM agreement just so that we don't have any <laughs> conflicts. But it was like, I think it was like just a couple of sentences long. And it was yeah. just like... Basically, just affirming what we already knew. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. She she did she did want to have an agreement, and I was like, well, we know this stuff. You know, do we need an agreement? Uh, but you know, it's, it's been helpful to 
kind of have formally expressed and defined in our heads what our roles are. That's cool. I didn't know you did that. That's great. Can you tell me a little bit about the campaign, which is called Tales from Turnian? Uh, just for our listeners who haven't played it, and you've created a very fun homebrew flavor, so it's not a straight up and up D&D campaign. It's a little different. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, basically the baseline is, is that I wanted to have, have a campaign that was set in a world that follows fairy tale logic. It was based on fairy tales. And the idea kind of came to me because I was taking a course in college at the time that was about critical approaches to reading children's literature. And the first thing we read as a class was the Grimm's fairy tales. And I fell in love with them. Um, and so I was like, oh, it would be so cool to have a D&D campaign that was just this. But at the time, I didn't think it would be possible because of the unique flavor that fairy tales have is decidedly not what D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, was designed for. Dungeons and Dragons is basically... It's a fantasy backdrop. It's set on a fantasy backdrop. And so like the rules have been kind of optimized for that kind of setting. And so I didn't really think that it would be possible to have a fairy tale D&D campaign. And yet I kind of had some ideas and inspiration one day and I thought maybe this could work. And I knew exactly which fairy tale would be the first adventure. And I told Andrew about it and we kind of basically were like, well, how do we take the rules of D&D and make it work for a fairy tale setting. And I think the part that really confirmed to me that it was possible was when Andrew figured out how travel would work. Do you want to talk about the travel system very briefly and how it's yeah. different from quote unquote traditional campaigns? Because it's it's difficult to say, you know, that D&D has to be done a certain way. It's true that it was designed in a certain way, but like the thing about D&D is that you can do really whatever you want with the rules. Yeah. So interestingly enough, I think before CJ even you know came to me with this idea, I'd already spent a little bit of time on my own thinking about how D&D was different from fairy tales. Uh, so I was already, but before this became a thing, aware of some of the difficulties. Uh, I hadn't really set out to work on them. It was just something that had passed through my mind one day. In D&D, a lot of the emphasis is on, you know, going out to get to the dungeon or going on a quest to find the dragon and, you know, kill it. And so the way travel and resting tends to work, which is kind of a, a difficult topic in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, a lot of different people do it differently. Generally speaking, people have some kind of a map of the world. You know where this is, you know where that is, and you travel from point A to B to, you know, go on the adventure. And that's just not the way fairy tales tend to work. Fairy tales don't come with the little map in the corner that shows where everything is the way that Tolkien's Middle Earth has a map at the beginning of the book. So the way fairy tales do work tends to be something like you need to go over the jagged mountains, through the black forest, and across the silver sea. Uh, you, you have these, these things that the, the characters need to get through and go through. So I figured if we just give the players these terrains, uh, you can keep that, that feeling. And then each time someone goes through a terrain, like you need to go through the black forest... Uh, then you you roll some dice and you can get some fairy tale like encounters. Like you meet a uh, little woodsman in the forest doing something fairy tale like I don't know. <laughs> um, but you know the, the, these random fairy tale things. Um, I think that in one of the the hills you guys went, you met Glinthy the witch, who was just you well, know silly sales stuff. Witch. Yeah, yeah, sales witch. And so so you just come across all these things uh, that have a fairy tale feel. And rather than, you know, tracking day in, day night, you know, how many resources have we consumed? Do you have the supplies or, you know, or just kind of 
fast traveling, jumping from one place to another uh, on the map. Uh, I think it enriched uh, the experience to uh, have this kind of, you need to go through this and over that and you have these different terrains and then have basically random encounters in the terrains. It's also just more convenient um, as uh, a dungeon master because one of the problems with traveling in D&D is that you know, people will travel for a day and they'll like maybe meet one monster and they'll just use all their resources and kill it right away. Uh, whereas with this, by saying you have to roll multiple times to see what you get, well, you can't rest until you get to the end. Then that kind of gives it a little more of a challenge, a little more resource management. So some of the D&D game, I think, is improved with this kind of an approach, this kind of abstracting of travel. We've come up with a lot of different little things to help support the flavor of, you know, fairy tale logic yeah. and, and fairy tale worlds and stuff like that. But, you know, I think that the, the travel system is the one that we are most proud of, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it, it's hard because fantasy Tolkien-like stories are about coming along and being, you know, powerful, strong, and being able to overcome obstacles and, you know, fight them into submission, usually. Something along those lines. That's generally how fantasy works and how D&D works. 90% of the class features you get are all about fighting bad guys. But in theory stories, so often the person who is the main character isn't some gallant knight. Sometimes they are, but... They're often just, you know, the miller's son or, or frequently it's just, you know, some princess or, or something that, you know, is not super strong, not super powerful, but they're very clever and they use their cleverness. So trying to create a world where combat is an option, but it's not the only option uh, or even the, the main go-to option, uh, that's, that, that was difficult. There's something I've wanted to know because you have the random encounters. If the players don't encounter someone or something, do you kind of recycle that back in at a later point? Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and part of it is because we have that flexibility. If you just kind of don't find something out, for all you know, it was always intended that you would encounter it later on, you know? And that's a really nice flexibility to have because, you know, it, we don't really have to be very sorry necessarily that you didn't quite get far enough to experience this one thing. We can just kind of take that one element and then, you know, put it in a little bit farther up and hopefully you'll, you'll uh, encounter it then. So I think that's one thing that's kind of nice about it because, you know, in fairy tales, it kind of feels like there's a lot of uh, random elements kind of thrown together. They're, they're kind of like puzzle pieces in a sense, and we can kind of arrange them in a certain way. But if it doesn't end up happening that way, then we can we can repurpose what we planned and use it elsewhere. We like the stuff we prepare <laughs> as much as you do, so we're not going to just let it let it all go to waste. <laughs> no, <laughs> it also saves a lot of time. You're like, okay, we prepared yeah. like a bunch of stuff. If we had to prepare like six different things every time you went traveling, it would be just way too much. It's, it's much easier mm -hmm. to say, ah, throw in some new ones and keep this fun magic thing that hasn't happened yet in, in the running. Yeah, and, and luckily a lot of the preparation work was done already. So when it comes to using it again, it's all the work has been done. <laughs> now, I know I'm still playing this campaign and I know there's a lot ahead. But can you tell, uh, without spoilers, some of the fairy tales that have inspired you for this camera? Um, well, from my perspective, I think that the one that was the most inspiring was the one that you as the party started with, which was the, the soldier and the carpenter. And it is basically about these two characters, the soldier and the carpenter, who come to this enchanted castle and they find these three animals the red swan the black dog and the gray cat and they find these three people in the basement who say basically you know until you kill you know either the red swan or the gray cat or the black dog depending on which character they were talking to we can't go upstairs and so the characters do that 
and then immediately they get, basically get betrayed by these witches who are in the basement and just needed you to kill these creatures. And their excuse for killing you was that you killed the animals that they told you to kill. I remember reading that. <laughs> I remember reading that for the first time, and I was like, "What the heck?" <laughs> Which, quite honestly, was our reaction <laughs> at the end. It was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was, that was, like, when I read it for the first time, and when I first thought of doing a campaign with fairy tales, I was like, that would just make such a great ad- first adventure, or just, just such a great adventure. <laughs> so that one kind of, I think it was one of the points where Andrew really got really invested, was when he found out that I actually had a, found a fairy tale that would actually work as a first adventure because I remember him asking you know like well what would what kind of adventure would you do and I'm like let me read you the stories I found (laughs) 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 and yeah that that story is just perfect for a D&D adventure there are a few stories that I've read uh, where I thought wow the main character in this very story or in this fairy tale the main character is basically a murder hobo. Uh, they would fit right well into the D&D world, but the story as a whole wasn't that great setup for a D&D one-shot or campaign or anything. Uh, but this one, The Soldier and the Carpenter, was just absolutely perfect. Okay, so like, what is the percentage of actual fairy tales and stuff that you make up? Oh. That would be impossible, I think, to really calculate, but... There are some things that we lift wholesale directly from somewhere else, like um, that one encounter that you had, um, I think the bridge gnome who told you, you know, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to cross my bridge, then you have to tell me that I'm pretty. That was lifted almost word for word from a TV show. And, it, you know, there are some things that we lift directly and almost don't make any changes whatsoever. Then there are some things that we lift, but we kind of tweak it so that it works for what, you know, the story we want to tell. So for example, when the soldier and the carpenter, um, we changed a few things, like we changed the dove, who turns out to be the king of the castle. He's supposed to be with the characters to help them defeat the witches, but we didn't, like there were six players, and so we didn't really think that we needed him. So we kind of didn't have that element. And then another thing is that like we added elements like the silverware is missing and there's no salt and stuff like that because we already had in mind that we wanted to add those three quests at the very end. But then there are some things that we make up entirely on our own and don't really have any direct origin. Like like that disco party in under the basement was something that we just made up on our own. And so it's, it, again, it's just, it's difficult to say what the percentage is just because we take inspiration from our own understanding of what fairy tales are and what they're like and we take directly from fairy tales or other sources or we take them and then we tweak them a little bit and add our own elements so it's just a whole bunch of creativity borrowing creativity and making things up so and then like the the bear and the bees uh where you have to decide are you going to help the bear uh get the honey or are you going to help the bees defend their hive that feels like something that I must have read in a fairy tale somewhere where, you know, the, the kind-hearted person uh, helps the bees and then the bees give them a favor or uh, they, they help they help a, a, a you know, bear and the bear follows them. Uh, you know, th- th- those sorts of things, you know, it's not something I came up with. I, it, it was just somewhere in my head, but I can't point to a specific fairy tale that it's from. Okay, this is a phrase that I use a lot. It's very on-brand. <laughs> Um, so basically if we come up with an idea or if we find something, an idea that we want to use, usually what I'll say is, yes, yes, let's do it. It's, it's very on brand. (laughs) It feels fairy tale-ish and that's kind of the important thing. Well, and there's quite a few fairy tale aficionados in our group. And I think it's wonderful that everything feels so fairy tale-ish and also there's little things that we appreciate that you've created well going back to the question you asked a little while ago as to what has influenced us uh i think that one thing that it definitely influenced me and probably cj too is our elder sister uh she would 
tell us stories sometimes. And they were often, all the ones I remember anyway, had a fairy tale quality to them. And yeah. so this sense that, yeah, we can just tell a fairy tale and that, you know, this love for fairy tales, that's something that mm-hmm. was inherited or um, fostered or grown in part from Rachel, our sister, uh, who, yeah. who helped plant it and tend to it. So mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. that... And she would- she would do that too. She would make up her own fairy tales mm. or she would tell fairy tales that she had read, but like some of them she would change. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. And it's really especially nice because she's actually one of our players now. And so it's like, we are able to facilitate something that she kind of helped to foster in us. Yeah. Like if you, if you want to go way back and try to find the, the original inspiration for, you know, just fairy tales and the love of fairy tales and definitely uh, Rachel was instrumental in that. And now it's time for a random quote from our guest. A quote that I have for you today. Um, well, I guess I can repeat a quote from one of my favorite TV shows, which might also be a little bit of an inspiration, uh, Princess Tutu. A story start is a sudden event. Its birth, a happy accident. The end's the fate for which it's meant. A story without an ending is a cruel thing. That's from one of my uh, favorite TV shows, uh, Princess Tutu. I like that quote. Uh, it's always kind of been ringing in my my mind from time to time and so I would share it and CJ what do you um, have I have today? a quote from C.S. Lewis's um, essay on three ways of writing for children um, and it goes when I was 10 I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I had been found doing so now that I am 50 I read them openly When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. And I really love that quote because I really feel it now. Like something that I love doing is finding picture books and fairy tales and things like that. And so, and and that's actually in part because of that class that I mentioned, um, that college course that I took. My professor, who is an amazing woman uh, taught me to love picture books again and taught me that picture books are really valuable and are just as valuable for an adult as they are for a child. And so I think this particular quote really speaks to that sense that it's not, it, it shouldn't be considered silly or childish if you still read picture books or fairy tales. It's, they're, they're still rich sources for knowledge and ideas. Goodness. It feels so self-serving to ask, do you enjoy being in the campaign? Because <laughs> you're still in the campaign, so obviously you must like it enough to, you know, well, good grief, you're, you're having us on your podcast, so you must like it at least a little bit. <laughs> yes, but do you like it okay, as so much as uh, meat like salt? Ooh. Is that supposed to be oh, a confusing um, question? Maybe you haven't heard of this particular fairy tale, but there is one where the king asks his daughters, how much do you like me? And one of them says, I like you as much as meat likes salt. And he thinks that's in a contrast, answer. He sends her away. Like, uh, yeah, he sends her away. It's basically in contrast to her sisters who say things like, oh, I love you more than the sky or the sun, or I love you more than my own life. And she says, I love you as meat loves salt. And so he, he thinks that it means that she doesn't love her at all. These are items that you would find on a commoner's table. She does not value him. And so he sends her away. But through a series of events, what ends up happening is she... Um, like gets married to this prince who finds her and then she like the king is invited to their wedding but she speaks to the cooks beforehand and tells them not to use any salt for the wedding feast and so when the king takes the food he begins sobbing because he finally gets it that without salt the meat is completely flavorless and bland and is not good to eat at all so um, he, he finally understands what she meant by telling him 
that she loves him as meat loves salt. And she reveals herself and they have a little reunion. It's, it's great. <laughs> Fairy tale reference. <laughs> I love it. I... To be fair, that was probably uh, part of, you know, this idea of salt and salt being really important. Part of what was inspiration for the salt mines that you guys went oh, to. Oh, yes. Yep. Just like oh. the, the significance of salt, part. I think, was just, I, in fact, I think I was thinking about that specific fairy tale just because there is a sense that in old folk tales and things, you know, the, the idea of salt being very important is something that comes up, I think, more than once. But like, in that story in particular, it's just kind of a stuff with me. Well, I, I do enjoy the game so much. Um, as someone who is just getting into D&D and as someone who really enjoys fairy tales. I I love it and I love your style. And I want to know what is a NPC or a situation that you particularly enjoyed creating or unleashing on us the players? That is very hard to say because we love everything that we unleash on you. <laughs> Um, the thing is is that we we usually just pick things that we ourselves enjoy and that we think are fun and so there I can't really say how many times there have been where like one of us suggested an idea and we're like oh my gosh yes I can't wait to share that you know so I think and it, it really is just a bunch of curated ideas that we really love ourselves and we're pretty sure that you know everyone else will really love too I think some highlights have definitely been like the basement gnomes. Mm. Um, our Gyrus Nork. Yeah, Glenthy, Glenthy, oh, yeah. the snail's witch. Yeah, um, we were so um, stoked for our Gyrus Nork as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, just because he's, he's kind of this contradictory kind of character because he's an ogre, but he's he's basically a a sophisticated ruffian, I guess. He steals things, and yet he's very polite about it. His quintessential quote is, I would never dream of stealing from my neighbors if they were still at home. <laughs> um, and I think that really kind of encapsulates what his character was like. And so we were really interested in giving you that kind of contradictory character because he was, he was fun. Um, I had a funny voice planned for him, and I was excited to be able to share that. I liked springing the grumpy retired salt miner Fumi Gregor just because I knew I would have a chance to basically just role play a character who was very grumpy. (laughs) We really enjoy putting the stuff together anyway Um, and so it's really hard to just pick one thing that we particularly enjoy just because we love all of it. Yeah I, I think that one thing that I did particularly enjoy I really liked coming up with, working with CJ on coming up with the cold-hearted knight. Oh, that was so fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, we, we just, like, had written down, uh, you know, a list of, like, encounters that you could potentially get. Something like, oh, they might meet a knight who challenges them. You know, that's the sort of thing that might happen. And then when we tried, you sat down to flesh that out a bit more like well what's the night like you know what does he you know, look like what's what's his deal it just snowballed mm-hmm. into this amazing story about this guy who had replaced his heart with a heart of gold but it was so cold because gold is a cold metal that now he is completely unfeeling rather than making him the greatest knight, it made him uh, a twisted knight, uh, mm-hmm. which is just such a cool idea and we had all sorts of possibilities and ideas and you know little flavor here and there that just I was so enthusiastic about that uh about creating that yeah that was I think the most fun for me to be part of the creative process because it went from just kind of the standard oh they need a a knight who challenges them to a battle or something to this Mm -hmm. really cool story that we just made up yeah I really, really enjoyed that storyline because it was different, but it also felt like something I had read before. It it had such a fairy tale feeling to it. Mm-hmm. It was great. As CJ would say, and it's on brand. That lead... <laughs> it's totally on brand. <laughs> and, and something I wanted to mention, I really enjoyed your brand 
And it's really different than I expected. Usually in fairy tales, I I like my fairy tales kind of old-fashioned. And you have some modern elements to it. And I I feel like you, you do a couple different things. I feel like that first encounter with the three magical, dangerous animals (laughs) was very standard fairy tale and kind of on the darker side same thing with the night of there's there's almost kind of a a grisly dark that definitely that grim's fairy tale feel but then you also throw in more whimsical and also some modern things uh like i remember nork's mailbox is full of fashion magazines and then the entire gnome disco party (laughs) is obviously you know not necessarily from grim's fairy tales and i i wanted to a mention i really like the mix you found and i wanted to ask you about that mix is is this something you're conscious of or are you just throwing together things you like and i just <laughs> well, it, like it too yeah it, it isn't really conscious like we didn't set out to create this world so that it would have a mix of like old-fashioned and modern elements we did not intend for that to be the case necessarily nor did we not intend for it not to be the case, of course. The Basement Gnomes is a good example. It just had to be a disco party. <laughs> it just had to be. There, it, there was never, it was never a subject that was up for debate. It just had to be a disco party because that was the, the feeling that we wanted. But like, the thing about fairy tales is that um, it kind of brings up questions, even though like, what even is a historically accurate fairy tale? because they they were part of the oral tradition, meaning that they were transmitted um, through oral performances. And so until you got people caring enough to write them down, as soon as you write them down, you freeze them in whatever state they happen to be in at the time. But with oral performances, you have these stories that people would tell. And so they would change and transform and evolve. And depending on who was telling them and their own personal preferences and style and skill as a storyteller and who was listening to it at the time. And so I think that it's perfectly natural to include a lot of bizarre elements that don't necessarily show up in old fairy tales because it's still kind of in that tradition of transforming the story to fit who the story is for and what the story is about and things like that. And so it feels like it's still being very true to what it is to be a fairy tale to have those kinds of random elements, like a disco party or like someone who's complaining that they didn't get a mug with the company name on it or or things like that. So again, we didn't necessarily set out in order to make some kind of grand statement about what fairy tales were intended to be. It just was very natural for the modern elements to be modern elements because they were they were in line with the tone that we wanted or with the image that we wanted the players to get um, about a certain thing. You know, because like especially with the uh, disco dance party, like the focus was on the dancing. And when you think of a disco party, you think of a party where there's a great emphasis on the dancing. Um, not that other parties aren't about the dancing, but, you know, it, it's like it's flashy. It's ostentatious. It's got a very particular style. And so that was kind of just the flavor that we really wanted for that moment. And as for like the flavoring in whether it's a darker story or a lighter story, I don't really think that we want this campaign to be like grimdark. Yeah. We just want it to be grim sometimes because the thing is, is that, you know, some fairy tales just don't flinch away from the, you know, more grisly side of life. Yeah, and the, I, I feel like whenever I see something online saying, you know, this is, you know, the real fairy tales, the dark kind, or, you know, uh, I read about... Uh, I think there's a TV show called Grimm or something, and they a lot of it is focusing on trying to make fairy tales more dark and edgy and, and grown up. And I think that, that that approach really kind of misses what it is about fairy tales that can make them so dark. Uh, it's that when you tell a story uh, with, in a fairy tale mode, 
you just have to accept the world however it's given to you. The clock, clock strikes 12 and you turn into a pumpkin. You know, the child just accepts that. And you know, somebody cuts off their toes, the t- child doesn't question it. They accept the cutting off of the feet as readily as the transformation of a coach into a, a pumpkin into a coach. It's that just kind of you know, accepting everything. And so if you want to really get a fairy tale feel, uh, you don't do that by just making things grim and dark and edgy. You get that by saying, oh, yeah, there, there's violence. There's, you know, blood. There's, you know, all this stuff that, you know, makes us as grownups, you know, kind of draw back, but which makes kids lean in. That's how you make fairy tales feel like fairy tales while also being a little darker than the Disney version. Yeah, fairy tales aren't for children because they hold the mm. children's hand and try to shelter them from the harshness of life. Mm. So, you know, that, that's not what they are. That's not what they were intended for, you know. So I think that it surprises a lot of people when they read, like, the first edition of the Grimm's fairy tales that they actually are pretty grisly and pretty, like, shocking and stuff. And I think that like um, later editions of the Grimm's fairy tales, like the Brothers Grimm basically edited out a lot of the more unpleasant aspects of it because, you know, fairy tales have this association that they're supposed to be innocent and they're supposed to be kind. But like that isn't necessarily the case. But like Andrew was saying, it's it's not the fact that they are Grimm that makes them fairy tales. It's more the the things that they tap into, the the universal themes that we continue to adapt to our own uh to our own culture and stuff the things about fairy tales that still speak to us even today is not not so much that they were grim but just more that they were about those Andrew what was it that you were saying the other day about Andrew said something that was really insightful earlier (laughs) oops I mean I know I feel like I, I said the thing that I think of the most that the thing that makes fairy tales uh, what they are uh, is this kind of openness to receiving the world however it's presented. Yeah. And that includes, yeah, that that, that includes uh, the openness to um, receiving a world that is maybe, you know, has has things that we generally think of as uh, a bit dark. Uh, it's, It's not in making the blood realistic, you know, blood and guts everywhere. It's in just asserting that there are blood and guts everywhere and leaving it at that. For me, the appeal of fairy tales is a bit of the unpredictability of them. You never really feel safe and you're never really sure what the rules are. Like, like Andrew was saying, you know, in the original Cinderella, the, the stepsisters cut off their toes to try and make their feet fit. And, and from a realistic point of view, like, that's messy, that wouldn't work, there would be a lot of blood. But for some reason, in a fairy tale, it just becomes this, uh, you don't think about that, you're just thinking about, wow, they're really desperate, they're willing to, to do that. There's like this feeling of uncertainty of what is okay and not okay you know in fairy tales sometimes people die and then are brought back to life and stuff and you're not sure what is permanent and what is not there is a kind of contingency or arbitrariness to fairyland uh this is something that gk chesterton talked about a little bit in one of his books he said something along the lines of the scientific, you know, way of looking at the world that is, you know, so popular these days. He tends to say things like trees must produce, like apple trees must produce apples. That is, you know, a biological necessity. And when you throw something up into the air, it must necessarily fall back down to the ground. That is a physical necessity. And there are all these cause and effects, scientific necessities of how the world works. And what Fairyland does is it says the world doesn't have to follow these things. I mean, sure, one plus one is necessarily two. Fairy, Fairyland doesn't really question those kinds of necessity. But when it comes to the tree, a tree could produce apples or it could produce golden apples or it could produce 
iPhones. Uh, another kind of Apple. Another kind of Apple. Uh, it, the, the, the sky kind could of be Apple. painted purple. There's all sorts of you know, different possibilities. You throw something into the air and it disappears in a puff of smoke. Uh, it doesn't have to fall back to the ground. Anything is possible. And because it reminds us that anything is possible, it is also telling us that the fact that we go out into the world that we are living in and we see a tree that produces apples, that's amazing. Because the tree didn't have to produce apples. The world could have been totally different. But there they are. They're apples. And we should have a sense of wonder at the world because of that. So fairy tales, because of their strangeness and their arbitrariness, show us that the world we live in also has a kind of strange and arbitrary quality to it. The fact that you only always get apples from an apple tree, that should shock us and make us be filled with childlike wonder. And so that, that's one aspect in which the arbitrariness and the uncertainty of fairyland uh, is really important uh, from Chesterton's perspective. And he, he also talks about how, yeah, fairyland has these rules and you need to follow the, the, the rules. You need to be home by midnight or you turn into a pumpkin. You need to uh, not stand on your head in the fairy palace. And if you raise your hand and said, explain to me why I can't stand on my head in the fairy palace, then his response is to say, well, explain the fairy palace. Things are just there and, and you have to accept them. And he says that's also true of our existence. We exist in the world. There is this amazing fact that it would have been possible for you to have never existed and everything you experienced to never have been experienced by you. So when you are confronted with the world and the world has these arbitrary rules or these things that you know, are a certain way, rather than taking an attitude of rebellion and saying, I'm going to find my own way of doing my own thing, we should say, it's amazing that I am here to uh, have any interaction with these things at all. And so the correct posture to the world that we have is one of gratitude and acceptance and, and wonder. So anyway, that's some of the stuff that Chesterton gets out of this uh, fairy tale. The, the fact that fairy tales present us a world that is strange and so different from the one we experience. I also think it's really special that you've been able to take that and put it into the D&D &D format. I feel like D&D &D is a really special system because it's it in itself is kind of unpredictable. And that leads me to my question of, has there been a time when the players have reacted to a problem or something with a solution or a reaction uh, you did yes. not expect? And basically we can sum up that in, I think it's two words, music box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Basically we so... did not have any music box <laughs> planned. Uh, it was something we had to invent. In fact, so for the benefit of the um, listeners, basically what ended up happening is the players were talking to Argyrus Nork and they were thinking that maybe they could steal something from this ogre that would help them to hopefully obtain something that he wanted them to get for him. And so basically we, we did not anticipate the players wanting to steal something. We hadn't planned exactly you know what it was that they could steal and so Andrew was just like well okay sure um you find a box that has a little bit of silver on it and I think it was one of the players who suggested I think it was uh the player who it was Rebecca. uh yeah it was Rebecca it was uh, Monique um her character is Monique um and she was like what if it's a a silver music box and we're like yeah awesome that's that's what it is yep mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a it's a silver music box <laughs> And the thing that just boggles my mind is the way that they stole it and were able to get away with it. It was like crazy. I still, it's like one of the finest moments I've ever seen because basically my sister 
Rachel, her character is this nimble fingered character who like does magic tricks and things like that. And so she, she kind of makes it disappear and then convinces him that she can't bring it back because the way to bring it back is to sing and, and call it back from the, the dimension that it went to. <laughs> and so she's like, oh, you know, like you, ha- you have to sing the melody of the music box. And well, he's never heard the melody of the music box. And so she's like, well, that will be really difficult to get it back. But if you sing a, just a song, maybe the, your favorite song, then in, close your eyes and just try really hard. Maybe you could get it back. And it worked. <laughs> Yeah, and another to say, he closes uh, his eyes and belts out opera. And that was one of those improvisational moments, uh, which kind of ties into what we were saying about the basement gnomes, uh, that it just had to be a disco because it felt so right. Uh, and we never planned on Archivist Nork singing a song, but in the spur of the moment, I realized he would be singing opera. And that mm-hmm. was perfect, and there was never any question. There wasn't, you know, well, does this fit with the fairy tale field? No, it's just like this is who he is. This is what has to be. It has to be. Right. Uh, so yeah. That was entirely so, improvisational. Yeah, and so if that stands to me as a testament of player unpredictability, <laughs> because it just it was we did not expect it. Everyone knew that the music box until that point did not even exist, but basically it just it. <laughs> It was it was needed by the story, and so it popped into existence. But then, not only did the players have to figure out what to do with it, we as the DMs had to figure out what to do with it as well. <laughs> so now that it existed, what was to become of it was the big question that we had after we ended that session. It was like, what do we do now? They have a music box, and the Norks have lost their music box. How are they going to react to this? So yeah, it was very interesting and. One of my, well, I think one of my many favorite moments from the campaign. There are many favorite moments. That is definitely one of mine. I, I have a list of things I want to draw. Me too. And one of them Me is too. <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry, it's, like, it's like, that's just such a funny image. It's this idea of this ogre who's just singing opera, ogre opera. Can you share some things that you've learned? If there's anyone out there who's thinking about... Uh, starting a campaign and wanting to be a DM, what could you share for someone just starting um, out? One thing that I didn't really know before, you know, becoming a DM was that we really shouldn't have used D&D mechanics. We should have used a different RPG system, probably. Um, one that was a bit more flexible, a little bit more forgiving, given the things that we really wanted to do. I kind of have a certain sentimentality towards D&D, so I'm not really sad that we ended up with D&D or regretting it necessarily. But like in retrospect, I think that, you know, maybe uh, someone who is wanting to run an RPG is that D&D is not the only RPG system out there. And depending on what kind of campaign you want to run, it might be worth looking into other systems to see, you know, like, would this system kind of better fit the tone that I'm going for. Because one of the challenges of the turning a campaign is in D&D, there's just such a strong emphasis on combat. I think Andrew could probably speak to this struggle a little bit better than I could of trying to tell this story of, you know, fairy tale story and also make sure that the players are able to gain experience points so that they can level up. But like, like, like Andrew was saying, you know, all of your character traits are mainly about combat so we don't necessarily want you know combat to be the only solution to certain problems yeah it's definitely been hard one thing uh and yeah i I second the idea that uh, you should think about you know what other rpg systems out are there out there that might better suit your campaign but also um if you're going to use dnd i do recommend Kobold Fight Club is an online resource that makes making encounters and figuring out experience points a lot easier, at least for me. I was basically able to, when, when one of our players didn't show up, I was able to uh, go online and rebalance the encounters we had planned in like five minutes by uh, 
clicking a few buttons to figure out what would make sense. Uh, but yeah, it, it's hard uh, to have experience points and all this stuff tied into that because like how much experience points do you get for tricking Argyrus Nork? If you fought Argyrus Nork instead of trying to trick him, uh, how many experience points would you get for that? Because I don't want to say like in official D&D, you get experience points for killing things. I don't want to say, well, you only get experience points if you kill our guy or snore. That's, that's, that's that not wasn't how what we wanted. That's not what we wanted. Yeah, but how much is he worth? That's the question. How much is he worth <laughs> being tricked? Is it just the same number of points? And uh, I, I, it was really hard to kind of say, well, it seems like this whole thing is maybe difficulty medium. And so I'll pretend mm-hmm. that you fought it's the equivalent of fighting this many orcs or whatever. It's... Yeah, it's, it's hard to it's hard to estimate that kind of thing. So you know, figuring out what experience points you get was particularly tricky. Yeah. So like understanding that you know D and D is not the only not the only system out there, and in some ways it's actually a very restrictive system. Another thing that I would recommend to someone who's just starting out is to try to be really clear about what kind of campaign you really want and what kind of experience do you want you and the players to have because if you can establish that then you'll minimize the chances that there's a misalignment of expectations i think that starting out with the campaign i did my hardest to really convey to everyone who was involved that this is not going to feel like other campaigns i think there are some things that i was able to communicate well enough but i think there were other things that i wasn't really able to communicate well enough at the start of the campaign, because, you know, this is my first DM experience and good grief, I kind of went for the deep end. <laughs> so yeah, I think those are, those are, I think the top two things that I would tell someone who's just starting out. Thank you so much for being willing to talk about this campaign. I know both of you have put in a lot of hard work to create the mechanics and the storytelling. And I love hearing you talk about fairy tales and uh like i say as someone who appreciates and enjoys fairy tales (laughs) it just like thrills my soul of how how much you know about them and the feel and some of the whys and not only the mechanics of D&D but the mechanics of fairy tales so thank you for coming and sharing about that thank you for having us we enjoy we enjoy talking about our brilliance Thank you for listening to the Patchwork Girl and Friends. You can help make the show better by supporting me on Patreon. My Patreon supporters get access to cool benefits like early access to commercial-free episodes and behind-the-scenes features. Just look for Patchwork Girl Productions on Patreon.com. Next time on the Patchwork Girl and Friends. My favorite characters, these two British guys who are obsessed with cricket. And it makes me really glad that this movie in particular was made by Alfred Hitchcock. It seems to walk a fine line between suspense and slapstick, which is a weird line. England wasn't greatly involved in what was going on in Germany at the time. A lot of people wanted to just say, stay peaceful, and World War II was just about to start. This movie is basically saying, we gotta get involved. <laughs>